This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Hepatocellular Carcinoma. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Hepatitis B and hepatitis C infections are leading causes of hepatocellular carcinoma. We now have medications to treat and cure hepatitis C, but the same is not true for hepatitis B. The World Health Organization estimates that nearly 300 million people worldwide live with chronic hep B. But hepatitis B actually wasn't even discovered until 1965. American geneticist Dr. Barry Bloomberg not only discovered the virus, but also linked the infection with liver cancer. He then went on to develop screening tests to prevent the spread from blood donation, as well as the first vaccine a few years later. The vaccine has been remarkable. It reduced transmission of hep B in Chinese children from 15% down to 1%. For his groundbreaking work, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1976. And because hepatitis B is a vaccine-preventable illness, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recently updated their adult immunization recommendations in 2022 to recommend universal hepatitis B vaccination for all adults under the age of 60. This is an exciting development in the fight against liver cancer because hepatitis B rates have been increasing in U.S. adults 40 and up for over the past decade. Today, hepatocellular carcinoma still remains one of the most deadly forms of cancer. So to discuss hepatocellular carcinoma in more detail, I've invited one of Ohio State University's experts. Dr. Lon Lacante is an associate professor of medicine specializing in transplant hepatology. 
She directs the hepatobiliary tumor program at OSU. And as if that weren't enough, she also researches hepatocellular carcinoma and disparities in patients with liver disease. Today, she will be reviewing the epidemiology, treatment, and prevention strategies for hepatocellular carcinoma. Lana, welcome to MedNet. Thank you, Dr. Mao. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to hear your talk, but I have a question first. Is hep B without cirrhosis still a risk factor for developing cancer? It is a risk factor, and that's the reason why the AASLD, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, recommends that we screen patients not only with cirrhosis, but also those with chronic hepatitis B, because mm -hmm. the virus itself is a risk factor even in the absence of cirrhosis. Okay, great, I'm excited to hear more. Thank you so much. A few reminders before we begin our program. If you have any questions, don't forget to send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of our webcast player. You can also find the entire catalog of our 120 programs on our website, ccme.osu.edu, or on podcast by searching for MedNet21 on your preferred player. Now let's get started. Lama? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you again, Dr. Mao, for that introduction. Today I will be talking to you about hepatocellular carcinoma. I do not have any disclosures. In the outline of my presentation, we will talk about the epidemiology of HCC, also called liver cancer. We'll talk about prevention and screening for HCC. We'll talk about treatment as well. As an introduction, HCC is the sixth most common malignancy worldwide, and it is the third most common cause of cancer-related mortality. It is responsible for one million deaths each year, and in the United States, over the past 20 years, the incidence of HCC has increased significantly. And the death rate has also increased. It has increased by 20, by 43% between 2000 and 2016. Despite advances in screening and early detection, liver cancer has a poor overall five-year survival rate of about 18 to 20%. And it is the second most lethal cancer after pancreatic cancer and certainly does not get a lot of attention. The incidence has tripled since 1980 and death rates have also increased by an average of 3% a year over the last 10 years. This is data from the American Cancer Society looking at trends in incidence rates between 1975 and 2009. And this is looking at both males and females. As you can see, the incidence has increased significantly for liver cancer over time. In 2015, we saw a slight decrease in incidence for both men and women. However, we are now seeing an uptick again in the incidence from 2009 going forward. When we look at death rates for liver cancer, we see a similar story. So I'll point out to you here, death rates are in the orange bar and new liver cancers or incidents are in the blue bar. If you look at the orange bar, looking at death rates specifically between 2000 and 2020, as you can see, the death rates continue to go up for liver cancer. When we look at trends in death rates, this is data from the American Cancer Society again, and this is between 1930 and 2020. And what I'm showing you here is different cancers that we hear about most commonly, and certainly the cancers that have higher death rates in our country. Looking at colorectal cancer, leukemia, 
lung cancer and pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, we have seen a lot of the death rates decrease over time, particularly when we look at lung cancer in red and when we look at prostate cancer as well in pink. We have seen the death rates decrease even though we know the incidence is increasing. Unfortunately, when we look at liver cancer, which is in the darker blue, what we have seen over time is not only the incidence increase, but the death rates increase as well. And this tells us that our treatment recommendations have some way to go still. This is looking at estimated death rates, and this is 2023 data, which we just entered. So lung cancer and bronchus cancer will have the highest predicted death rates in our country, followed by colon cancer, pancreas, breast, prostate, and lastly, liver. I, I show this to really share that I think we all hear a lot about lung cancer, colon cancer, and the other cancers that you see up there. But liver cancer does not get the attention it deserves, despite being the sixth most common cause of deaths in 2023 and in many years previously. This is data from the American Cancer Society, and at a glance, this is what we are going to expect for 2023. We will expect about 41,000 new cases of liver cancer, about 30,000 deaths, the incidence about 8.6 per 100,000, and the death rate about 6.6 .6 per 100,000. Regarding demographics and who gets affected by liver cancer when we look at age specifically, we see the age group between 55 and 74 years of age be the group that most commonly gets impacted by liver cancer. However, as you can see here, we also see this disease in younger patients as well, which is why some of our screening recommendations that I will share with you later recommend that we start screening patients based on age for certain diseases. When we look at who gets impacted by liver cancer mostly, Although it impacts both men and women, as you can see from here with males in the blue line, this is a disease that significantly impacts more men than it does women. But that is not to say that women don't get impacted significantly as well, but certainly it is a disease that has some gender disparity. When we talk about liver cancer, or really any, any disease state, chronic disease state in the United States, I think we are all very well aware of the disparities that exist. And although this will not be the focus of this presentation, I do think that it is important to highlight disparities in liver cancer in our country. These disparities exist both for incidence and also for death rates. When we look at incidence rates for liver cancer and intrahepatic bile duct cancers, as you can see from this slide, American Indians and Alaskan Natives have the highest incidence rates in our country, followed by Hispanics and Asian and Pacific Islanders than non-Hispanic blacks. And this is comparing them to non-Hispanic whites. When we look at death rates, unfortunately, we see these disparities continue to exist and potentially even more pronounced in certain ethnicities. Non-Hispanic whites, the death rate is 5.9. Non-Hispanic blacks, 8.3. And you can see that death rate increase as you move to Asian and Pacific Islanders, Hispanics, and American Indian and Alaskan Natives. And I share this with you because many times when we talk about disparities in healthcare,
We often don't focus on American Indians and Alaskan Natives. And this disease is one, as you can see, significant disparity exists. And it, this is certainly a demographic that warrants additional attention to be paid to them when we talk about disparities in healthcare, liver cancer in this case just being one example. When we look at survival, this is five-year survival data from 2012 to 2018. For all stages combined, the survival is about 20%. When we look at localized disease, meaning the disease that we can identify quickly before it has spread extensively, that survival rate improves to 36%. Once we start moving to regional and distant disease, we see our survival rate decrease significantly to 3% with extensive distance disease. It's important to realize that liver cancer is a global problem. I've shared data with you, mostly from the United States, but liver cancer actually exists more significantly in other parts of the world compared to the United States. This is looking at age-adjusted incidence of liver cancer per 100,000 men. As you can see in the red, which is the, most, which is the highest incidence rate, liver cancer is very significant in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia. And a big reason for this, as was mentioned by our moderator, Dr. Mao, earlier, is that hepatitis B is actually the number one cause for liver cancer. And although we have made progress in this country, hepatitis C vaccination rates remain low in parts of the world, including Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. When we talk about any disease, we need to spend some time looking at prevention. So the focus is on preventing progression of chronic liver disease to cirrhosis, because we know that cirrhosis is the greatest risk factor for liver cancer. So how can we encourage that to happen? By instituting worldwide vaccination for hepatitis B, as has been mentioned earlier. There are very few cancers in the world that can be prevented by vaccination. Certainly, we've heard about HPV vaccination for cervical cancer. Hepatitis B vaccination for liver cancer is a cancer that can be prevented by vaccination. It is important that we screen for hepatitis C. The CDC recommends that all adults above the age of 18 and all pregnant individuals undergo a one-time screening for hepatitis C. And hepatitis C has been one of the remarkable success stories in the liver world in that our treatment nowadays is absolutely fantastic and it has come a long way in the last 10 years and we are now at a point where we are able to cure many patients with hepatitis C. A disease that is getting a lot of attention and deservedly so is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD. The way we prevent this or better manage this is really by better managing the metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, weight loss, hypertension, etc. Autoimmune hepatitis and primary biliary cholangitis are chronic liver diseases that we can manage with medical therapy. Primary sclerosing cholangitis remains one of the challenges in the hepatology world in that it is a disease for which we have not yet developed adequate treatment options. And I'd also like to highlight that smoking and HIV can also contribute to liver cancer development, particularly when HIV, for example, exists with a concomitant disease like hepatitis C, 
we know that putting that combination together hastens the progression to cirrhosis and hastens the progression to liver cancer. As I mentioned earlier, NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, is increasing in incidence worldwide. In the United States, liver cancer incidence due to NAFLD is expected to increase by 122% between 2016 and 2030. As we know, the obesity epidemic is significant in our country, and we have not turned the corner of that epidemic yet. And unfortunately, as that epidemic continues to grow, we anticipate NAFLD incidence growing, and therefore liver cancer incidence growing as well. We know that in the near future, liver cancer and NAFLD specifically will be the number one indication for liver transplantation in this country. I'd like to turn our attention to screening for liver cancer. The AASLD, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, has specific recommendations and guidelines regarding who to screen and when to screen. The recommended imaging screening interval is six months with an abdominal ultrasound plus or minus an alpha-fetal protein level, AFP, which is a simple blood test. The recommendation is that we screen patients with cirrhosis and those with chronic hepatitis B with or without cirrhosis. And it is important to note that AFP alone should not be used for screening. Regarding the clinical presentation for liver cancer, typically there are no additional symptoms other than those related to the chronic liver disease. It is important to maintain a high index of suspicion. Say for example, in a patient with cirrhosis who has been doing very well, and all of a sudden develops features of decompensated disease. And by that I mean hepatic encephalopathy, ascites, varices, or variceal bleeding. If those new symptoms develop in your previously well-compensated patient with cirrhosis, we should go looking for liver cancer as the potential cause of that decompensation. AFP lacks adequate sensitivity and specificity for effective surveillance and diagnosis. Not all tumors secrete AFP. In fact, about 40% of liver tumors, liver cancers, do not produce AFP. So a high AFP can be helpful, but a low AFP should never be reassuring. Is surveillance effective? So let's really start by thinking about what is surveillance or screening. It is the repeated application of a screening test to an at-risk population. And the goal is to detect disease at an earlier stage where potential curative options are available to reduce disease-related mortality. Liver cancer readily lends itself to surveillance. One of the landmark studies that aids how we practice today came out of China in 2004. And this was a study involving 18,000 patients with chronic hepatitis B who were randomized to biannual surveillance with ultrasound plus an AFP level or no surveillance at all. We screen for liver cancer because we know that symptomatic advanced disease, as I showed you in an earlier slide, has very poor outcomes and the five-year life expectancy is less than 10%. In comparison, if we are able to screen patients, the five-year survival rate is greater than 50% when we are able to identify liver cancer early and potentially perform resection or liver transplantation.
This is the study by Dr. Zhang and his group out of China. The screening population is in blue, and the control group who did not receive any surveillance with abdominal imaging is in green. This is looking at survival after a diagnosis of liver cancer. As you can see from this, the survival is significantly higher in the group that underwent screening with ultrasound in AFP compared to the group that did not undergo screening at all. Furthermore, what they found was that the screen group, 60% of those patients, they were able to identify liver cancer in stage one, meaning in very early stage of the disease where curative options could be offered. As you can see in the control group, there is no green because they were not able to identify any patients in an early stage, stage one, in order to be able to perform potential curative therapy. So who should we screen? The AASLG recommends screening Asian men with hepatitis B carriers who are over the age of 40, Asian women with hepatitis B over the age of 50, and any hepatitis B carrier who has a family history of liver cancer. We should also screen patients with hep B and cirrhosis of any cause, and African Americans and North American blacks with hepatitis B. And typically, screening is recommended to start at the age of 20 in this population. And as I've mentioned before, all patients with cirrhosis should be screened. A big reason why I do this work and enjoy this work, we all have those experiences in medicine where we meet patients who impact how we practice and that we always remember. When I was a fellow, a second year fellow, one of the patients that I was fortunate to interact with was a young African-American man in Nashville, Tennessee, who was 30 years old. And he had acquired chronic hepatitis B via vertical transmission from his mother. He had never been vaccinated or treated. And by the time he presented to the health system, he had metastatic hepatitis B extensively and was not in a position to receive any kind of treatment, unfortunately. That has always stuck with me in that this is a disease that could have been prevented in this young man had he received adequate treatment with vaccination or screening. Moving on to diagnosis. Diagnosis should be based on imaging technique and or biopsy. And we use multi-phase imaging, meaning multi-phase CT scan or MRI. And we look for intense arterial uptake followed by washout or delayed phase washout. Specifically, to make the diagnosis, we are looking for a tumor that is greater than one centimeters, and again, with very specific features in imaging of arterial enhancement, delayed phase, meaning the tumor becomes hypo-intense to the background liver. Oftentimes, we also see a pseudocapsule, which is a ring around the specific tumor. It's important to realize that based on these specific imaging characteristics, Biopsy is rarely indicated for liver cancer, unlike many other cancers. This is looking at a liver cancer, and the black arrow is pointing to the lesion. In the arterial phase, you can see a bright white spot, and this is that arterial enhancement that we refer to when we get multiphase imaging. As you move through the images along from A through B, you can see that mass become hypo-intense to the background liver. 
And this is what we refer to as delayed phase washout and venous phase washout. We use the LIRADS classification to help us determine how to characterize a liver mass. LR1 means benign, LR2 is probably benign, LR3 is intermediate, LR4 is probable liver cancer, and LR5 is definitive liver cancer. I point this out to you because many times when you obtain multiphase imaging, and you are looking specifically at a liver mass or cirrhosis, these are the criteria the radiologists will put in their note to help us better understand how to characterize that lesion that we are looking at. So for screening specifically, when we screen with an abdominal ultrasound, if our lesion on ultrasound is less than one centimeter, we recommend obtaining another ultrasound at three months to assess for growth and change in character of the lesion. If the lesion or mass is greater than one centimeter, we recommend then moving to the multiphase imaging study, as I previously described, with a CAT scan or an enhanced MRI. And as you can see here, we are looking for those specific features, again, of arterial enhancement and delayed phase washout. If on MRI or CT scan, we are still not able to fully characterize the lesion as an LR4 or LR5, at that point, we recommend moving to a biopsy to obtain definitive diagnosis if the concern for liver cancer still exists, but our imaging remains indeterminate. Moving on to treatment. When we talk about liver cancer treatment, we use the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Algorithm, the BCLC. And this is the most widely used algorithm endorsing clinical practice and clinical trial design and has been in use since 1999. It classifies patients into five stages and the treatment recommendations is per stage. It looks at tumor burden, the quantity and the size of the nodules, presence of vascular invasion, and extrahepatic spread. And additionally, the child turkey pew staging system is used for assessment of hepatic synthetic dysfunction. I'll make a note that the CTP is a very subjective assessment of hepatic synthetic dysfunction because it takes into account ascites and hepatic encephalopathy, which are subjective markers, and I'm sure vary from physician to physician or clinical provider to clinical provider. This is the BCLC strategy for prognosis prediction and treatment recommendations, and this was recently updated in 2022. This again looks at the five stages, very early stage, early stage, intermediate, advanced stage, and terminal stage of liver cancer. And as you can see, different treatment recommendations are outlined based on each of these stages, along with the expected survival. I will be going through some of these treatment recommendations and options in the following slides. When we talk about liver-directed therapy, Specifically, we refer to liver transplantation, resection or hepatectomy, as you may see it referred to, percutaneous ablation or radiofrequency ablation specifically, transarterial chemoembolization or TACE, radioembolization, which uses yttrium and is also called TEAR, a stereotactic body radiation therapy, SBRT.
The way that we determine best therapy and which of those therapies, as I mentioned, we use really depends on the underlying liver function and the hepatic synthetic reserve. For this, we use the MEL score or the CTP score, as I mentioned earlier. The MEL score, which stands for Model for End-Stage Liver Disease, takes into account the sodium level, the bilirubin level, the creatinine level, and most importantly, the INR level. INR is the most sensitive marker of hepatic synthetic dysfunction and gets the highest score on the MELT calculator. To determine best therapy, we also look at the stage of disease's presentation, at presentation, looking at the tumor burden, the size, and the location. We'll look for extrahepatic spread and portal vein invasion, and we'll look for comorbid conditions closely as well, along with the patient's functional status. One of the treatment options, as I mentioned earlier, is surgical resection. This is potentially curative in patients with adequate hepatic functional reserve. The ideal patient for surgical resection has a single liver cancer that is confined to the liver. There should be no radiographic evidence of invasion of the hepatic vasculature, such as the portal vein, for example. Ideally, there should be no evidence of portal hypertension, such as varices or ascites or hepatic encephalopathy. We are looking for well-preserved hepatic function, and we also like to see platelets over 100,000 in these patients who have been considered for surgical resection. The ideal candidate is a patient with chronic hepatitis B who does not have cirrhosis, or a patient who may have cirrhosis, but they are child PUA. To further assess surgical risk, we look at the MELT score to help us select ideal candidates in addition to the CPT scores I mentioned earlier. We know that patients with a pre-op MELT score greater than 10 have 90-day mortality rates approaching 15 to 25 percent. And again, we can use non-invasive indirect measures of portal hypertension, such as the platelet count, to help guide our management plan. We'll look at tumor-specific factors and determine the suitability of hepatectomy or resection for liver cancer, including the size, the number, and again, vascular invasion. The goals of any local regional therapy, such as TACE or Y90, a to prolong survival by inducing tumor cell death and necrosis. To slow the progression of tumors to reduce pre-transplantation dropout rates and to keep Milan within Milan. The goal is to downstage tumors, if possible, to meet transplantability criteria. I will be discussing Milan criteria in upcoming slides. Percutaneous ablation is one of those local regional therapy options that we use to downstage patients or keep them within Milan criteria. And this involves the destruction of tumor cells, and this is achieved by injection of chemical substances such as ethanol or by modifying the temperature. This is usually performed under ultrasound guidance by our interventional radiologists. With radiofrequency ablation, RFA, a needle conducts a high-energy electrical current into the tumor. The best outcomes are in patients with a single tumor less than four centimeters in diameter. RFA is well validated and utilized by many centers across the country. And we assess efficacy of treatment by obtaining multi-phase imaging 
typically one month after therapy. Transarterial chemoembolization, or TACE, is another one of our frequently used local regional therapies for liver cancer. TACE takes into account the blood supply of the liver tumor. HCC gets the majority of its blood supply from the hepatic artery. Remember that the liver is sourced by two main blood vessels. The portal vein, which provides the majority of the blood volume and the blood supply to the liver, and the hepatic artery, which provides a smaller volume to the liver. However, liver cancer is unique in that all of its blood supply comes from the hepatic artery. So TACE takes advantage with this transarterial chemoembolization approach. TACE is used most often for the treatment of large unresectable liver cancers, and it is most commonly used as bridging therapy prior to transplant. What I mean by bridging is to downstage patients, meaning decrease their tumor burden and size, into Milan, or to again keep patients who are in Milan criteria within Milan. The agents that are frequently used for taste include doxorubicin, mitomycin C, and cisplatin. Many centers, including Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, use doxorubicin. There are contraindications to taste. The absolute contraindications include the absence of hepatopetal blood flow, such as portal vein thrombosis or significant biliary obstruction. Relative contraindications include a bilirubin greater than three, tumor burden involving greater than 50% of the liver, or cardiac or renal insufficiency that is significant. Another commonly used local regional therapy for liver cancer is radioembolization. And you'll see this called a few different names as I had previously mentioned, including Y90 or TEAR. This involves the intraarterial injection of small microspheres loaded with the radionucleotide yttrium 90, Y90. The delivery of the microspheres into the feeding vessels of the tumor leads to their settling in the tumor without affecting the vasculature. This is a beta-emitting particle that has a localized radius of radiation delivery, and the half-life of Y90 is about 60 hours. Y90 very much like taste, also has advantages and disadvantages and cannot be applied to every patient. The advantages of Y90 is its low toxicity, its potential to allow us to treat patients with significant tumor burden, relatively limited side effects, and unlike taste, we can use Y90 in patients with portal vein thrombosis, PVT. The disadvantages of Y90 is the high cost, compared to other treatment modalities. It typically requires at least two abdominal angiographies. The first one is done for mapping purposes. And there are certain anatomical constraints, example, pass-through of the radioactive material to the lung that may result in pulmonary shunting. This is one of the most important studies that came out recently in radiology. And this study looked specifically at Y90 compared to TACE for patients with unresectable HCC. This was a single-center perspective randomized controlled trial, again comparing Y90 or TIR with TACE. The patients had BCLC stage B, intermediate, and stage A, 
early and were not eligible for resection, ablation, or transplant. 70 participants received treatment and were followed over time. The results of the study showed that the time to progression for TACE was significantly higher at 9.5 months compared to the time to progression for TIR, a Y90, at 17 months. The overall survival was also significantly lower for TACE compared to patients who received Y90 or TIR, 15 months compared to 30.2 months. And this data was so statistically significant that this study was actually stopped early because of the significant differences. And again, this is a new study that just came out in 2002 and will need to be validated over time. However, this may change some of the way we practice going forward in our treatment for liver cancer in that many centers are more likely to use Y90 going forward than to use TACE. This is a summary of some of the local regional therapies that I have described, including TACE, Y90, and ablation, as you can see outlined here, and really looking at the risks and significantly the benefits. As I just showed you with the previous study, this is an evolving field of treatment for liver cancer, and there will be more to come down the road. Finally, let's turn our attention to liver transplantation. This study that I'm sharing with you by Mazzaferro and his group, it's one of the landmark studies in how we practice hepatology, transplant hepatology, and liver transplantation. This was a study published in New England Journal of Medicine in the 1990s. And specifically prior to this, it is important to note that patients who had undergone liver transplantation for liver cancer had had very, very poor outcomes many of which was attributable to poor selection. So this study developed what we now know as the Milan criteria. They included patients with liver cancer who had a single tumor that was equal to or less than five centimeters, or a patient could have up to three tumors, but each must be less than three centimeters, and there was no evidence of extrahepatic disease. In this study, they diagnose HCC by biopsy or looking at an AFP level greater than 300. And there were 48 transplants done using this criteria during this time period. The results were that following liver transplantation, the actuarial survival at four years was 75%, and the recurrence-free survival at four years was 83%. This survival rates were significantly better than anything that had been seen prior to this study being, being performed. And again, this supported our Milan criteria <coughs> that we now do today. This is data from the American Journal of Transplantation looking at liver cancer metro ticket. <coughs> we can afford the price if we don't go too far. On this, you can see the Milan criteria which I just described for Mazzaferro and his group. And there's also various other criteria, as you can see, including the Pittsburgh criteria, Tokyo, Dallas, UCSF, etc. However, I highlight this to say that Milan remains a really groundbreaking study and continues to be the, the landmark study that we use and what guides our liver transplantation criteria going forward. 
What the Milan criteria allows us to do is give patients mild exception points. This gives patients with stage 2 liver cancer, and stage 2 liver cancer is ca it's patients who meet Milan criteria, and it affords them equal opportunity for transplantation. Initially, they were given additional points aimed at matching the risk of death in end-stage cirrhosis. What was discovered over time was that too high a priority was being given to patients with liver cancer, and this was deemed unfair to patients without liver cancer who were also on the wait list for transplantation. Milan has undergone multiple iterations. The most recent one is that patients with liver cancer can only start accumulating additional exception points after being on the wait list for at least six months. And they are awarded additional points at six months based on the regional median MELD score for their specific region. What the time on the wait list also affords us to do is to assess tumor biology over time and the risk of recurrence of, or progression of liver cancer while patients are on the wait list within that six month period of time. Again, mild exception points looks at T2 lesions. The AFP must be less than 10,000. And again, that Milan criteria is a single lesion between two to five centimeter or two to three lesions that each must be between one to three centimeter. And again, I highlight that there must be no vascular invasion or extrahepatic disease. Liver transplantation is now accepted as the best curative therapy for stage two HCC. It not only provides complete oncologic resection and correction of the underlying disease as well. The advantages are that you get definitive management. We not only treat liver cancer, but we also treat underlying cirrhosis. The disadvantages, as many of you are aware, is that there are long waiting times for donor organs. And what we are doing is that we are really trading one disease for another, the disease of cirrhosis and liver cancer with the disease of lifelong immunosuppression. We have done some progress and made some progress in our use of marginal grafts and living donation to help increase our organ pool. However, despite some of this effort, significant gap remains between available donor and patients awaiting liver transplantation. Lastly, I want to touch on systemic therapy. Systemic therapy is used for advanced unresectable liver cancer that is not amenable to curative or local regional therapy. And patients must have adequate performance status to be able to undergo systemic therapy as many of the other therapies I previously mentioned. HCC is considered to be a relatively chemotherapy refractory tumor. There's a high rate of expression of drug-resistant genes, and it's challenging to gauge benefit from chemotherapy in patients who have advanced HCC. Survival is most often determined by the degree of hepatic dysfunction. And unfortunately, systemic therapy is not well tolerated by patients who have significant underlying hepatic dysfunction. The SHARP trial was published in the early 2000s, and this was at the time groundbreaking and really produced one of our first agents that we could use systemically to treat advanced HCC. This was a placebo-controlled phase three trial, 
and enrolled patients with child A and HCC compatible with stage, T, stage C disease by the BCLC system. They used serafinib as their agent, and what they found was that the median survival was nearly three months compared to placebo. So patients who received serafinib had a median survival of 10.7 months versus 7.9 months for those patients who did not receive serafinib. This largely stabilized the tumor by delaying tumor progression, mainly acting as a cytostatic agent. And this led to approval by regulatory agencies in 2007, both in the United States and in the European Union. From serafinib in 2007 to 2002, we have come a long way. As you can see on this slide, there are now multiple agents available for systemic therapy for liver cancer. Again, it's important to note that this is not curative therapy, and really this is used for patients with advanced disease for whom a curative option is typically no longer feasible. Some of the agents that we now commonly use include Atizo and Beza for child A cirrhotic patients. We also use tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which include lenvatinib and serafinib, as I previously mentioned. And again, many of these patients must have child A or B cirrhosis, advanced hepatic synthetic dysfunction, child B or beyond, typically is not amenable to systemic therapy. We also now use immunotherapy, immune checkpoint inhibitors. It is important to note, however, that this is typically contraindicated post-transplant patients who may develop recurrence or for those patients with liver cancer who are on the wait list because of the potential interaction with immunosuppression going forward. In summary, we have moved through liver cancer in a little bit of time, but for screening, we want to do an ultrasound every six months with or without an AFP. And again, if a lesion is noted to be greater than a centimeter on that screening ultrasound, the recommendation is to move to multi-phase imaging with a CT scan or an MRI. What we are looking for to diagnose HCC is that LR5 classification. If our imaging modality remains indeterminate, then we should consider moving to biopsy to obtain definitive diagnosis. I have outlined to you the BCLC categorizations of different diseases from early stage to terminal stage, including the treatment recommendations based on each of those different stages, which have included surgical treatment of liver transplantation and resection, and local regional therapies such as ablation, TACE, Y90, and lastly, systemic treatment for those patients with advanced HCC who have decently preserved hepatic synthetic function. It is also important to note best supportive care and work very closely with our palliative colleagues as needed because the reality of liver cancer and some other cancers is that we may be diagnosing patients at the end of the disease in a terminal state and in a stage for which we don't have treatment to offer outside of making sure that we provide as much comfort as we possibly can. In conclusion, the incidence and death rate of liver cancer is incre increasing. Screening is vital. Liver cancer is a complex disease for which multidisciplinary care is warranted. 
For patients with cirrhosis and portal hypertension, the mainstay of therapy should be transplantation if appropriate. And the local regional therapies that I have outlined for you can be used to bridge patients to transplant. Here at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Centers and many other centers that are transplant centers across the country, it really takes a multidisciplinary team to manage these patients as best as possible. This includes transplant hepatologists, transplant surgery, surgical oncologists, interventional radiologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, and our pathologists as well. Thank you very much. Wow, thank you so much, Lama. That um, was awesome. You really went through a lot there in a very short time, including, you know, not just what you would do as a hepatologist, but a lot of what your colleagues would do in your multidisciplinary team. So that was really helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I do have a, qu a couple of questions. So the first one is, you know, you said that screening is very important and, you know, thank you for outlining the patients that we should be screening. But how do we know a patient has cirrhosis? Are there recommendations to screen patients, certain patients for cirrhosis, especially, let's say, someone who's obese who might be at risk for fatty liver disease? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that question. Because unfortunately, obviously, to even go down the liver cancer screening pathway, we must know who to screen and who has cirrhosis and who does not. Mm -hmm. So what we recommend many times is the patients at least once a year when they see their primary care doctors get labs obtained. And that could include basic labs such as liver function tests, for example. Mm -hmm. And we also recommend that patients also get blood counts checked as well. And by that, I mean looking at the platelet counts. We see many patients who have had low platelets, less than 100,000, for many, many years, and they have been sent to a hematologist, received bone marrow biopsies, for example. Mm. But seeing thrombocytopenia should also be a clue that potentially this may be secondary to chronic liver disease. Mm -hmm. And is that also true for just mild um, decreases in platelet counts, like between 100 and 150? Potentially. I think if you have that, in addition with some liver number tests being elevated, mm -hmm. that should take us down the pathway of looking for cirrhosis. The other thing that I will mention as well, Dr. Mao, is that we have non-invasive tests to look for the degree of fibrosis. So it's not simply a cirrhosis versus no cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. We now have non-invasive tests in such as fiber scans, for example, that can help us gauge the degree of fibrosis and steatosis, especially with NAFL patients. Mm -hmm. That is definitely helpful. Um, now, moving on to Hep B a little bit. Yes. Uh, you know, it's I've heard that there are now ways to suppress Hep B using antivirals, which is awesome. Does that also help in preventing cancer if we treat patients with Hep B? It does. For those patients who warrant treatment for Hepatitis B, certainly if we are able to suppress the virus, it does help in preventing the progression to chronic liver disease and liver cancer. It is important to note as we talk about Hepatitis B, however, that we can only suppress the virus. We cannot mm -hmm. cure the virus unlike hepatitis C, which we can cure. But treatment, when indicated, certainly does help prevent progression. Mm -hmm. And do all forms of chronic Hep B carry the same risk? Like if somebody has a higher viral load versus someone who has more of a carrier latent state? Yes, that's a great question because there are different stages or states of hepatitis B, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And really our treatment recommendations as far as should we treat or should we not treat 
it's really based on the viral load, the ALT level as well, for example. Mm -hmm. Certainly, all the that goes out the window when a patient does have cirrhosis with hepatitis B. We treat all those patients with hepatitis B antiviral therapy. But for patients who don't yet have cirrhosis, we do look at the viral load and the ALT level to determine whether or not we should start treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, since hepatitis B can be an independent risk factor for cancer, um, does that make transplant, does that take transplant off the table for patients with hep B? Because I guess, I mean, if I think about it, they could get cancer again in the new liver because they still have hep B. Right. The, the goal always is to try to suppress the viral level, hopefully to undetectable levels mm -hmm. before we take patients into transplant. And we think of HIV the same way. Years ago, HIV was a question of whether should we transplant patients with HIV? Should we mm -hmm. allow them to undergo liver transplantation? And the thought nowadays is absolutely we should, mm -hmm. but we mm -hmm. must suppress that viral load before we go into transplant. Mm -hmm. So for patients with, with chronic hep B and cirrhosis or patients with HIV, we should treat them as best as we can, suppress the viral loads, and then we can certainly take them into transplant. Okay, perfect. That's really helpful. Now, you know, it sounds like there are many different physicians who could be involved yes. in the care of someone with liver cancer. So who do we contact first? Who should we refer someone newly that we've diagnosed by MRI scan with HCC? Do we, you know, send them to the hepatologist first or oncologist or surgery, radiology even? Absolutely. So liver cancer is interesting in that mm -hmm. it's probably one of the rare cancers that's not primarily managed by oncologists. The quarterback of liver cancer treatment is really the transplant hepatologist. Mm -hmm. Because as we've, as we've noted earlier, many of these patients have liver cancer because they have underlying cirrhosis of the liver. So the hepatologist can not only manage the HCC, mm -hmm. but also manage that cirrhosis and any underlying hepatic synthetic dysfunction, including decompensated features such as varices or ascites. Mm -hmm. Certainly when that patient comes to see the transplant hepatologist, we make sure that we then institute our multidisciplinary care as needed. Mm -hmm. So whether that is the radiation oncologist that needs to see the patient, the medical oncologist, for example, certainly the interventional radiologist or the transplant surgeon. But to your, to your question, when those patients are diagnosed, please send them to a transplant hepatologist. Perfect, so send them to hepatology. Yes. Now, one last question. Yes. So um, you mentioned in cases where you're not certain mm -hmm. it is um, liver cancer, then you would consider biopsy. Is there any concern in liver cancer that biopsy would like introduce spread? That's a great question because that is certainly a concern with some other malignancies. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for liver cancer, when we have looked at the data, we don't see seeding and we don't see spread from our biopsies. Mm -hmm. tend to be very, very targeting, but we have not seen, in my years of practice, I have never seen a patient develop extrahepatic disease from a biopsy, for example. Okay. And again, rarely do we need to biopsy, but if needed, it's typically done under very safe conditions. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. That was so. super helpful. Well, uh, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point. Lama? Thank you, Dr. Mao. The final key point that I would like to share with you and highlight is really the recognition of the impact of liver cancer in our country and worldwide. As I showed you at the beginning of this presentation, the incidence of liver cancer is rising and the death rate is also rising. However, it is not a cancer that gets the focus that it deserves. So by all means, I think it's important for all of us to recognize that, 
to ensure that we screen patients appropriately when indicated and get them the best curative therapy as needed. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to claim your CME credit and your MOC points for watching by logging onto our website at ccme.osu.edu and taking our post-test. Join us again next week with my guests, Dr. Loriana Soma and Dr. Lashmi Nair to learn about polycystic ovary syndrome. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.